Thanks for your interest in Emmanuel Baptist. Here at Emmanuel, we believe in the one and only authoritative text for guidance, the Holy Bible. We pray that this sermon will speak to your heart and open your eyes to the glory of God. Make sure you plug into your local church and get to know others that love the Holy Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, just like you. Thanks again, and God bless you guys. Maybe you or somebody you've known has experienced burnout. I've known a few people in my life who've experienced it. This is, usually happens to people who are overachievers. They'd like to accomplish a lot. They have many things going on in their lives, hard for them to handle everything. They think they can do it. But at some point, they burn out, totally overwhelmed physically, mentally, maybe spiritually. They may say things like, I have nothing left to give. Everybody wants from me, but I can't give anything anymore. I can't do anything anymore. There is nothing left in me. That actually is one kind of burnout. Another kind of burnout is probably what most of us are experiencing today. We live in 2018. That is, in some sense, we are getting burned out on the evil and the corruption of this world. Through access through news sources and social media, we are very, very cognizant and aware of a lot of evil that goes on all over the world. It's hard not to become desensitized to it. If you watch news on TV or your phone, you can scroll through on your phone in 30 seconds. Unbelievable suffering and pain and loss. And while you read a story of a tsunami killing 1,600 people, the next news source will be about your favorite team and how they won the game last night. You can go from thinking about 1,600 people's lives lost, taken into eternity, and then switch in a second. And you can think about your favorite team. Even that, that switch has a way, in some sense, of burning us out. So in some sense, we become desensitized to so many things around us. A lot of times we say things, did you hear? And most of the time it's bad news. How bad something happened to somebody. How terrible. In light of this, I found this following quote quite interesting. It really caught my attention. This is uh, written by a man named Carl Henry. He said, the early church did not say, quote, look at what the world is coming to. Okay. If we rephrase that in different ways, how many times have you or you said this or heard other people say that this past week? Man, can you believe how bad things are? Man, it's getting worse and worse. This guy is saying the early church didn't say that. They said this, look at what has come into the world. Wow, what a reshaping of perspective. Instead of thinking about all this evil and corruption, the early believers said, wow, look at what has come into the world. This Jesus who has brought the kingdom of God through a bloody cross has now changed the world forever and ever. Even though some people didn't recognize or feel the earthquake, 
It was a gigantic earthquake. And began to flip the world right side up. That's what's going on right now. The world was wrong side down, and Jesus is flipping it right side up. And it all happened through a bloody cross. And the early church said, can you believe what has happened? Not, look how bad things are. I would say in light of verses 6 through 9, we could not only say, look at what has come into the world, but look at what is going to happen to the world when this Jesus Messiah King comes a second time and finishes his work from the first time. Look at what is going to happen. And this is how we are to think as Christians, full reconciliation, full redemption, full glory of God. What Isaiah must have thought and felt when he received this revelation. You did hear these verses, right? Of these animals getting along with one another. What could Isaiah have been thinking? What in the world is going on here? He is dealing with coalitions and alliances and conspiracies and political intrigue. The mighty Assyrians want their land. They want the trade routes. They want the money. They want tribute. And Isaiah gets this great vision of this Messiah King who is going to come. And at the right time, Jesus is going to come again, and he is going to complete this work and bring this to pass. So heaven and earth will be one. Third part here on Isaiah 11. We're looking at how Jesus as the Messiah King is the source and the embodiment of any and all salvation in the world. Again, the world may not understand this, but as Christians we do, that any true salvation for this world, for the people and the world itself, will be completed only by Jesus. He is the only qualified Messiah. We saw that verses 1 through 2. We looked at his rule in verses 3 through 5, how he rules, the characteristics and values of it. And today we're going to look at verses 6 through 9. Jesus is the true and only Davidic king who is spirit-empowered. And because he is filled with the wisdom and power of the spirit, Jesus will make verses 6 through 9 come off the pages and make it a reality. It'll be more than just a movie. It's going to be real life. God's good promises through Jesus will not fall to the ground. They will not be idle. They will not be lifeless. Jesus rose from the dead and lives. He rules and reigns from heaven. And he's going to finally reclaim every dust particle on this earth. The glory of his Father. It's already his. He has come back to claim it. So today we want to look at these verses about the dominion the dominion of the Messiah King. We're going to look at the removal of the curse. We're going to look at the false utopias of the world. And we're going to look at this whole idea of heaven coming to earth. This part of the dominion of Jesus, the Messiah King. So first of all, let's look at the removal of the curse. The only world we know of, I understand, is a world full of sin and the effects of sin. We know nothing different. This has been our only home, 
and we have learned to live within the confines of the curse. Verses 6 or 9 kind of open a window, though, for us. Remove a little bit of the fog so we can see what this world is going to be like when the curse is gone. In Genesis chapter 3, we see different aspects of the curse. We see also, first of all, how the Lord spoke to the serpent. And so there's going to be enmity between you and the woman, your offspring and her offspring. We know that ultimately that refers to Jesus. Jesus is that final offspring. But we are in Jesus, and so we're also part of the offspring. And so there is great enmity in the world between Satan and Jesus and the followers of Satan and the followers of Christ. And this is a part of why the world is as it is. As it says there in Genesis 3, there's going to be bruising, heel and the head. All this is going on. All this is part of why the world is as it is. To the woman, to Eve, you're going to have pain and childbirth. There's going to be conflict. You're not going to like your husband ruling over you. And as you fight back, he's going to fight back over you. Husband and wife are not going to get along. Man, Adam, cursed is the ground that you're going to work. You're going to sweat. You're going to deal with thorns. They're going to get on you, cause you to bleed, just so you can get a loaf of bread. (laughs) That's going to be a lot of work for not much, just to feed yourself. And then you're going to go back to the dust. Kind of step back and get a panoramic view here. What we're being told here, the earth is going to be full of conflict, full of chaos and dangers. One of the ways we see that that is evident is in the animal realm. This is what's highlighted here for us. The viciousness of nature and especially the animal kingdom. Many people say, you know, I'm just going to go out and be in nature because it's so beautiful. It is so peaceful. Eh, Yeah, but there's another component that's often hidden to a lot of people, and that is a whole lot of violence. Maybe you've heard the expression, red in tooth, red in claw. Red meaning blood. Blood in the teeth, blood in the claws. Tough thing to really go out and be in nature. Full of violence and death. What we see in nature really reflects the reality of the curse, the chaos, the violence, even in humanity. There's probably a, a literal component to verses 6 through 9, but it's also more than that. I think back to verses 3 through 5 here in the rule of this Messiah King, his rule of righteousness, equity, and faithfulness. That's what he's going to bring to the earth. But if you remove those things, what you're left with is hatred, conflict and wars, oppression and envy and deceit. If you get rid of those things, you can get rid of the curse and its effects. And Jesus came to bring that righteousness, equity, and faithfulness. But we see here's animal kingdom against each other. If that can be removed, what does that signal for humanity? If God can change the beasts of the fields like that, that do such violence to one another, maybe also can change human beings. 
So it says there in verse 9, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. I think ultimately in some sense it's referring to the whole creation. Neither will animals do this, but neither will people do this. Removed in the animal realm, removed also in the human realm. When Jesus was on earth, he did many miracles. Many of them had to do with nature, nature miracles, especially like with storms. And what Jesus was doing there, in some sense, he was holding back the curse. He's beginning to remove it by his power and give us a little foretaste of what it would be like to have that curse removed. It's very interesting. If you look at the temptation of Jesus, it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But all three have a little bit different take on it, a little bit different details. Mark's is very interesting. It's very short and compact. It talks about Jesus being in the wilderness, you know, 40 days, being tempted, fasting. And there is the serpent there testing him, just like back in Genesis chapter 3, right? The serpent shows up again. But who also is out there with Jesus? Wild beasts. Isn't that interesting? Mark throws it in there. Nobody else mentions it. But as Jesus is out there when, in being tempted there, he's hanging out with wild beasts. They don't eat him. <laughs> Something's going on here with this new Adam that has showed up. Because he doesn't sin like Adam when he is tempted and he could hang out with the wild beasts. Something new is happening. Something beautiful is going to happen. So what's this all about? We're being, what's being said here in verses 6 through 9? It says, first of all, the dangers and destruction are being removed. Dangers and destruction are removed. Adam and Eve sinned, and through their sin, it affected the earth. It brought curse on the land, and this is the way it worked. Adam and Eve, you sin, it's going to bring curse on the ground. So what about Israel? Israel is warned as well. The Lord says to Israel, you need to obey these statutes and these ordinances, and you will have my blessing. But if you don't, what's going to happen? The land will suffer just like Adam and Eve. So it is with Israel. And it says in Leviticus 26, verse 32, that Israel, if you disobey me, I will devastate the land. And it says in verse 22, Leviticus 26, and I will let loose wild beasts against you, and you will be bereaved of your children, and they will destroy your livestock. Part of the curse there, again, we got Genesis 3 curse, big curse, cursings, Leviticus 26, is if you sinned, you're going to affect the entire land. So Adam failed, Adam failed and affected land. Israel failed, affected land. Now here comes the Messiah King being tempted by the serpent. He not only survives, not only doesn't sin, but again, he hangs out with the wild animals. Through Jesus and his death and, and resurrection, danger and destruction are gone. Look at uh, verse 8. I like this one a lot. <laughs> it 
nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weed child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Not now. I don't even think about it. But then, it would be so much different. There will be no danger, no threat there that can happen. Animals, not even a threat to each other, nor a threat to humans. This is going to be a weird, weird thing for us in some sense, right? Because we are so used to there being dangers. That's how we have to live inside the curse, right? Because there's so many dangers in this life because of the curse. Let's say, you know what? I'm going to go to the beach. I'm just going to really relax at the beach. Have a good time because you go to the beach to relax. Not completely, do you? Because there's dangers at the beach. Take some suntan lotion with you. That sun will get you. You get burned, worse, you'll be in trouble. And guess what? If you go out in the water and you leave your things there, somebody might steal them. So you've got to protect your stuff. Then if you go out in the water and there's riptides, you could drown. So just having a nice day at the beach, you better take your precautions. Oh, let's go out to the mountains. Let's go hiking the mountains. Ah, there's dangers out there as well. As we went back there in May, walking on trail, there's a water moccasin on the trail. Woo! Where do you go and relax in the world? I mean, really go and relax. You can't go anywhere. There's no place truly to relax. There's a day coming, though. There's a great day coming. Along with this means that we know our pain and sorrow. You've got dangers, destruction. Along with that, of course, there's going to be pain and sorrow and anxiety about these things. And again, every day in this world, there is immense pain and sorrow and grief. Sickness and disease, accidents, war, famine, death. Again, think about tsunami, Indonesia, 1,600 people. I was watching last night the news of a Christian doctor in Congo who won the Nobel Peace Prize. He's working at this hospital for many, many years to help women who've been taken advantage of purposefully because if they can get these women and harm them sexually, they can control them and control their lands. And this doctor only works with these women. Unbelievable amount of suffering. Pain has been built in this world as part of the curse, not as God intended originally, but now we live in this box and we can't get outside of it. And this box is the curse. And pain is there, a reminder to us of what sin really is. But one day, no more pain, no more sorrow. Revelation 21, 1 through 4, it's in your bulletin. I forgot to read it this morning. Great verses about what it's going to be like. New Jerusalem comes down. Sorrow, no more tears, all that's taken away from us. Third and lastly, as part of understanding this curse, is that there'll be a proper order and peace on earth. God made the animal world, the wild animals and the domestic animals, and now they are in harmony. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. Leopard is going to lie down with the young goat. Calf 
and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. So there we have human beings that are over the animals now as God originally intended. That's the mandate from Genesis chapter 1. We rule over the created realm. We rule over the animals. Okay? And Psalm 8 verse 6, it reminds us that all things are to be under our feet. But we are mind the book of Hebrews and other places that we cannot do that. We've been unable to perform the mandate that God has given to us. We cannot put all things under our feet because we are in rebellion against God. So Jesus comes as the true Son of Man, and through His work on the cross, now all things have been put under His feet. And now because we are in Christ, now all things are under our feet as belonging to Him. Very, very interesting here, right? Verse 6, a little child shall lead them. What a picture, right? Leading these animals around, a little child. Chapter, uh, verse 8 talks about a weaned child. And this is not a shock to us as we're going through the book of Isaiah. Because chapter 9, verse 6 talks about this very, very unique child that's going to have the government of God upon him. And according to Isaiah 7, 14, he's going to be born of a virgin. And through Jesus' birth, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, he is going to bear fruit. Remember verse 1 of Isaiah 11? And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. What is some of that fruit? I give to you verses 6 through 9. That's the fruit of this renewed earth where violence and sin and the effects of sin are taken, taken away. This is what must happen. This reminds to us that Jesus is the Messiah King who brings this, and we have to accept it by faith and believe in Him to be in His rule and in His kingdom. And the only other choice we have is to do our next point, and that is to create a false utopia. This is the choice of humanity. I'm going to wait for God's salvation in Jesus or I'm going to create my own salvation through a perceived utopia. If you know that word or not, literally it means no place. A utopia literally means no place. Why? Because it's a place that's imaginary, a place that some of you feel that does not exist. Today it means for many people it's the ideal or perfect place. They have perfect time or place or society that has come to be. And this reflects that people have always dreamed of a perfect place because people cannot stand living in this world. And so people create in their minds utopia because of all things we've already talked about here this morning. I'm reading to Ecclesiastes right now. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, the author says, it's better to be dead than to be alive. Because you don't have to continue to see these oppressions on TV. Then he says, mm, wait a minute. Actually, it'd be better never to have been born. Death. 
very hard for humanity to deal with the reality of this life. And just let's remind ourselves, um, we live on a cushion. We live on thrones, unlike most of the world. Not like the women of Congo who fear being raped, so their lands be taken away. We don't fear really civil war going on. We don't fear really famine or disease. We just, we just sit on our thrones. But the world is a violent, treacherous place. Just because we've escaped most of it does not take that reality away. And we do not want to escape by creating false utopias, which was what the world has to do. This is how the world does it. They have different teachings, religions, politics, empires, movements, and philosophies. And now they step back and say, we have the key. This is the key that's going to fix this world and fix people. And you see it all over the place, because everybody wants this place so very badly. And not only do societies do this, but sometimes we do it as individuals. And sometimes we do it as families. And we try and create false places of security and peace called utopias. But there is a kingdom coming, finally complete, that is going to bump into and ruin and destroy all these false utopias. Because what are these false utopias about? First of all, they're about the imaginations of human reasoning and strength. This is what human beings do if they don't submit to God. They get together and they think and they plan and they create and say, how can we work together against this curse? Again, they're not going to say the word curse. But how do we work against all these limitations that seem to be placed on us? And they use their human reasoning, which is tainted by sin and filled with weakness, incompleteness, and miscalculation. You can think of Marxism and communism, all these things that have destroyed millions and millions of people's lives because some created a utopia and said, let's work on this together, all based on human reasoning, which is sinful at its core. We have many problems in our nation today. School shootings, opioid crisis, racial tensions. And what you're hearing constantly is how to fix these and what are the solutions that are being presented. Government. If we can get the right people in the government if we go to the ballot box and whatever they do, we can fix our society. We can make things great. How about money? We spend enough money. How about we start educating our kids better and more? That's going to fix things, isn't it? How about science? More sciences. All these are raised up as hopes, and it's hard for us not to be inclined to these and to pick them for part of our hope in this life. But they are false mechanisms. J.P. Moreland is a wonderful Christian thinker, great writer, philosopher, theologian. He's just written a book on scientism. So you hear the word science in there, right? Scientism. So what is scientism? 
Scientism is a belief that we should really only use the hard sciences, biology and chemistry and geology and things like that, and we use that information to really understand reality as it really is. The world can be a confusing place, but the way we clarify it is by using these hard sciences, and that is the ultimate explanation of reality. The ultimate, the best explanation is by looking at the sciences. I have not read his new book, but I've heard interviews by him. And he, who has a pulse, I think, on society today, says that most people in the church believe this. So I'm guessing that you and I, who are in the church, probably have fallen prey to this in different ways. He really piqued my interest when he said that most people today have more faith and trust in a doctor than in a pastor. People go to doctors, they pick up pharmaceuticals for hope, for peace, to fix their problems. Instead of really looking at their own hearts and souls, they go to something that by science to fix their lives. It's, it's a form of salvation. As a society, in some sense, we are physically and mentally breaking down, and we crave simple answers from the doctors. We want them to give us something that will fix our lives. And I've heard it said. I've heard people get angry at doctors because they can't fix the problem. That anger probably is reflective of a belief in scientism. That if we just have enough information, we can figure things out, and this will fix my life. Instead of really looking at the soul and my choices and my life that I have created, what is going on inside of me, I will take a shortcut through a promised utopian land. And we find ourselves butting up against the curse all the more. Caught in the box that God made. Number two, the second reason why they will fail is because they exclude the Lord's rightful place. People create utopias, but they remove the Lord completely from their understanding of what things ought to be like. They may totally remove Him like an atheist, like a communist and things like that, or they may set Jesus on a stool over there in the corner and say, you sit here and you look nice for us while we go about our business. So what we do appears to be religious, and people who are religious will be accepting of what we do. And so we've met the religious requirement because we have Jesus on a stool next to us. The Tower of Babel incident in Genesis 11 reminds us that God will not allow heaven on earth without Him. People want happiness. They want perfection. They want utopia. They just don't want the Lord. And that's what Judah is doing here. Instead of going to the Lord and submit to Him, they're going to other doctors and physicians of the soul like Assyria. And Egypt, and they're saying, fix us. Make us healthy and whole again as a nation. Be our protector. Be our healer. 
And Assyria says, sure, <laughs> at a price. In a book called Christ Plays in 10,000 Places, he says it this, this way. If what fixes the world is simply getting everyone forced or conditioned into good behavior, we don't need salvation anymore. We need education and training, political reforms and a cultural renaissance, a stronger police presence and a superior military, more information and more power. Very easy for us to think those things are our solutions. Isn't it? If we're going to be honest here this morning. Our hearts get wrapped up into the workings of the world that we see on TV in all kinds of places because we think that is it. If we do this, if we get this, this will be our salvation. But what you're doing, saying is, Lord, we really don't need your salvation. We have our own. The office book calls that salvation projects. We develop our own salvation projects and we recruit other people and say, get on board. This is what's happening now. You need to be a part of this and it's critical if you don't. And we see and hear that all the time. This is of utmost importance. We've got to win this battle. We've got to do this. This is going to be it. The only thing that is it is God's salvation. That is it. That's the it. But we've got a whole lot of it's in our lives that are ruling and reigning and making us bump up against the curse in frustration and anxiety and toil. And there is the Lord in Isaiah 6, high and lifted up, saying, come to me. All you are tired and weary, I'll give you rest for your soul. Third aspect of frustration of these utopias is that reasoning and self-justification will assuredly implode. Our own human reasoning, self-justification, while we need to take things in our own hands, all that will implode. Israel is putting their trust in Assyria. That's what King Ahaz is doing, and things are imploding. This is what will happen in a person's life, in a family, in a nation. There's corruption, there's conspiracies, there's distrust, there's conflict, there's bribes, there's abuse of power because they are doing it their own way. And God has designed the world in such a way that if you do your own salvation projects, they will implode. And all the destruction will fall on you. Back in chapter 8, verse 14, it talks about stumbling over the stone. That's applied to Jesus in the New Testament. It's the Lord. People stumbling over the stone, they're tripping and they're falling because they're constantly going with their own salvation projects to fix their lives, to fix their family, to fix their nation. Verses 6 to 9 happens only after millions of storms of judgment to eliminate rebellious and seditious plans that humanity has orchestrated. We're just getting the nice picture 
here in verses 6 or 9 that we all want to have. But before this picture happens, previously, God has spent himself in judgment on humanity because of their seditious plans against him. That's all part of it. The only hope is to give up our salvation projects, our false utopias. And I hope you know that's not an easy thing. We call it sanctification. We learn to push out these utopias, these salvation projects, and see how worthless they are. And we begin to boast and sing and praise God for His salvation. It's either or. Lastly, the movement of heaven to earth. Movement of heaven to earth. When people die in the Lord, they go to be with the Lord in heaven, God's very presence. But the eternal plan is, for the eternal state for the believers, is that God's very presence, heaven, is going to come down to earth, where God's people will enjoy his unending presence. Most people think of heaven in terms of always being up. Well, Revelation 21 says the new Jerusalem is going to come down. God himself is going to come down and dwell among his people. Heaven is going to come on earth. So we talk about being in heaven forever and ever with God. We're talking about the new Jerusalem coming down to earth. God is coming down to us to dwell with us. This is again where the Lord's prayer has now been answered. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this now, as we see here, is going to be all over the earth. Look at verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Up until verse 9, verses 6 through 8, anybody and everybody in this world would want this. The atheist, if you heard verses 6 through 8, would say, Amen, preach a brother. Who doesn't want this? Everybody wants this. But it's not heaven yet. It's not heaven until verse 9. Where the earth should be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. Most people today think of heaven only in terms of absence of pain and sorrow and get to be loved ones. And that is heaven. And it is your job to tell them that that's not true. Except I'm scared to death that we have people sitting in churches who think that's it. That's not heaven. That might be an atheist heaven, which it really is. I want a nice earth. I want all the comforts back. I want there to be no hostility, no chaos. Sounds great to me. But don't you dare bring God into this. And so for us as Christians, what makes heaven heaven is God, His presence. Otherwise, it is not heaven. It's a comfortable hotel, but it's not heaven. So verse 9 changes all of it as we now get the full orbed picture here of what this is all about, where every square inch on earth now is filled with God's glory and presence. So we're talking here about a heightened awareness of the holy presence of God 
heart, soul, mind, strength. That's what's going to be for us in this place described here. We are going to have a full awareness, heightened awareness of God's very presence. As Isaiah, in some sense, got to go before the throne for a little bit, so we're going to live forever and ever in God's presence. In the Garden of Eden, we know that the Garden of Eden was to expand and cover the earth. But the whole plan got stunted for a while because of humanity's sin. But now God is going to unleash the Garden of Eden and it's going to fill up the entire earth. As much as God can reveal to human beings, it will be given to us forever. I always like to think of this in terms of our senses. As people get older, uh, our senses are not quite as sharp. We look at things, they're not quite as clear. Our hearing gets a little bit worse. We go out to eat on a Sunday for lunch and like we enjoy the meal, but it just doesn't taste like it used to a little bit. Our, our senses are being dulled. But when this happens here in verse 9, every sense we have as human beings, 100%. And all of our senses will be used in the knowledge of God's presence. I don't know. What do I have, like 5% right now? What are you running at? How is your relationship with the Lord? How much are you aware of God's holy presence around you? Maybe like 5% compared to the 100%? Think about that being escalated to 100%. also means a full delight in God's glory and goodness. So here it talks about the holy mountain. Again, Isaiah chapter 6, we've got this heavenly temple. Holy, holy, holy. And now we see here in verse 9, the holy mountain is the earth. Look at this. They shall hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth. So what now is God's holy mountain? What mountain do you climb to go be with God? You don't have to climb a mountain. <laughs> it's over the entire earth because that was the original plan. Even back in the Garden of Eden, Garden of Eden really was, was a temple. And so now the whole earth has become the temple of God. Exodus 19.6, um, Israel was to be a kingdom of priests. Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, we are called a kingdom and priests. And so now we are in, looking ahead to God's holy temple, which will cover the entire earth. When this is true, they will not hurt or destroy. Who is that referring to? Context, it looks like the animals. But I think it moves on here to verse 9. It's kind of also, I think, only getting to human beings now, isn't it? The earth is going to be filled with the full knowledge of God. That's humanity ruling over it. And so now humanity, along with the animal kingdom, no longer hurts or destroys. We also be ruled by the Spirit as the Messiah King is here. Full delight in God's glory and goodness. Let me read to you a quote from Jonathan Edwards who wrote this. God glorifies himself in two ways. First of all, appearing to their understanding. That means God glorifies himself by showing and revealing truth to you, knowing truth. Is the story over? Nope. Number two, in communicating himself to their hearts. 
They're rejoicing in and delighting in and enjoying the manifestations which he makes of himself. God is glorified not only by his glories being seen, but by it being rejoiced in. We're coming to Isaiah chapter 12. Chapter 12 is where it's all going to culminate because that's where we see the singing and rejoicing of the saints. God does not want you only to come to church and to study the Bible to get information and have understanding. He wants you to delight yourself in Him and to rejoice in Him. That's how He is glorified. And He's done all that He has done for this very reason, that you rejoice in Him with exuberant, overflowing, unspeakable joy. He is the center and He is the whole and forever and ever, he wants to charm you, to mesmerize you, and to overwhelm you. And that is why you came to church today. If you didn't, you are not ready for verses 6 through 9. You are not ready. What we experience here at church together through the work of the Spirit is, in some sense, heaven coming down to us, the work of the Spirit. Their hearts delighting in those things which are going to be ours forever and ever. We are just preparing and getting ready for that day where we will have 100% of our senses enlightened and empowered to work. And that's why we come to church. God shows himself and we delight. Imagine you're in a play. You're an actor in the play. You invite your family to come. And they come, and after the show, you go say, hey, what would you think of the play? And you're hoping not only did they understand the play, the movements of the play, the meaning of the play, but you hope that they actually delighted in the play, that they had joy in it, they had pleasure in the play. God has performed salvation on the theater of the world. He made the theater, and he made the play. He wants you not only to understand what it's about, but He wants you to have great pleasure and joy in Him who is the creator and who is the actor and who is the completer of all this. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize this morning that we don't know ourselves very well you know us full well. And that's why we pray the psalmist, search us, O oh God. Know our hearts, know our ways. See if there be some wicked way in me that I have no clue about. Because maybe I'm constructing a little tower that just might reach in my imagination to the heavens. I so might be able to carve out a piece of this world and so make it work for me that will bring me this great joy and pleasure. We could have those building projects going on and still sing about your salvation. We don't want that. That would be highly against your salvation in Christ. So, Lord, this morning, by your grace, as you reveal different realities to us, help us to break those towers, those building projects, 
that we're so busy about doing, things that are so very important in our lives, things that we think will be our hope and our salvation. It's so hard just to wait upon you, Lord, just to let you be God in our lives and bring about what you want to bring about and just be at peace with that. Sometimes we're just scampering so hard trying to find solutions, trying to find prescriptions, trying to find remedies, trying to find all kinds of things. And there you are sitting in the stool in the corner. God, be the center, be the whole, be everything, because that's what you made this world to be. You made this world, and you are saving this world. Give us understanding, but then give us rejoicing, even as you break us and then save us for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.